What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. UPS, United Parcel Service. Uh, the stock is up, but uh, it's off two and a quarter percent today. It's only up about three percent year to date. One hundred fifty-five billion dollar market cap, but we got some problems there potentially later this month uh, with the labor contract there. Kriti Gupta, markets editor and host of Bloomberg Surveillance Early Edition, she joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker yeah. Studio. Kriti, what are you looking at at UPS? Tell, talk to us about the labor situation there. Oh, there's so much going on. Look, uh, remember when last fall we had those massive rail strikes where yep. the essentially the government had to get involved and say, look, we're shutting down these negotiations because you clearly can't seem to come to some sort of reasonable conclusion. Well, it looks like we're on the cusp of that happening again, except this time with UPS, uh, the shares are down about 2.2% in the pre-market. Over the weekend, they were supposed to have some pretty good negotiations and they were they were going well until now. Uh, it looks like they've collapsed. And, and what's important to keep in mind here is that the contract is coming up pretty quickly to end. So July 31st is when it ends. And, and this is why we care. 330,000 workers wow. in this country. This is the largest private sector union agreement. That's the reporting that country. got my attention. I didn't yeah. think about that, but it's massive. Yes, it is. It's okay. even bigger than the rail strikes. Ah, okay. um, and, and this has even has a, a bigger implication for supply chains. Imagine the folks who can't who can't get their packages. Um, so, so that's kind of what we're dealing with here. They're going through the nitty gritty. It looks like the union itself has walked away from talks this time around, but um, some pretty, pretty huge implications that this market is really reacting to. Yeah, I wanted to ask you more about the supply chain there, Creedy. Yeah. So, of course, like no one wants to get their packages late. That's yeah. frustrating. We all experienced that during COVID. But what, is there like a bigger takeaway here, a bigger problem besides delays? There is a bigger problem. Look, so so the, the way to think about the shipping industry right now is everyone's kind of tackling a little bit differently. There's three different players here. There's UPS, FedEx, DHL, and they all kind of do a little bit of everything. Um, so they will take your package or a business's package or a freight package via plane, train, automobile, throwing a ship in there. Um, and, and what's important to keep in mind is that FedEx and DHL have taken a very different approach than UPS has. Post-pandemic, when everyone was kind of uh, paying top dollar to, to get their shipments, FedEx and DHL really invested in their labor. And that's something that FedEx is now paying for. They're saying we overhired, now we're pulling back. So you see all these layoffs. DHL, they're not doing layoffs, but they are kind of dealing with that uh, crunch now that packages are declining through kind of attrition. And they're saying, we're just not gonna replace roles. Uh, UPS is a completely different ballgame because they never invested in labor in the first place. And that's a big problem. And a big part of that was because they're unionized, whereas uh, FedEx has more kind of an independent contractor network, which they are kind of now dealing with as well. UPS said, we're gonna focus on margins. We're going to increase prices. They're gonna focus on the smaller consumer and make up our margins from there. And you really saw that strategy work because if you look at the stock of the three companies, UPS has won out. They've outperformed over and over and over again, except now because of those margins, they're saying, look, we can't pay up. Whereas the union is saying, 
well, our wages aren't rising in line with profits, so why should we work if we're not getting that? So they are making some concessions, UPS, to, to these drivers. Uh, things like part-time drivers changing a little bit of shift. They're now getting MLK Day as a paid holiday. Um, no more mandatory overtime. Uh, there's no two-tier system anymore. Basically, part-time workers were making about $5 less an hour than full-time workers. So there are pieces of the equation, but it's still not at the salary level that a lot of these workers want. Well, I mean, the old contract, full-time, they can make up to $39 per hour. Mm -hmm. That seems like a good number, but yeah. are they saying, yeah, but you guys, being the company, made so much money during the pandemic, we want some of that? Pretty much. And look, it's also because of the overtime policy, because a lot of these kind of shipping constraints require some of these workers to to go overtime. And I think it's better, perhaps, because from an hourly perspective, $39 an hour sounds pretty juicy. Let's talk about it from an annual okay. uh, perspective. Full-time delivery drivers making about 95000 a year, even though they're doing it through kind of rain, hail, storm, through COVID, through all of these true. kind of issues. Yep. Um, did, they ever, did they ever get anything for... COVID, working through COVID? They didn't. And this is, I think, where a lot of the parallels with the rail worker story came. Because remember, for the rail strikes uh, last fall, they weren't getting uh, paid time off. They weren't getting uh, sick leave, for example. They weren't even getting access to benefits. So it's a lot of these same issues. Essentially, these are industries rail or shipping that are very intensive truck drivers really have to take have to kind of sacrifice a lot physically but also um in terms of family and, and how much time they get off as well so they want to be compensated for it especially with the overtime and and i think that's where they're struggling here and and they're basically saying look we've we've made some concessions but really you got to meet us on the pay and ups just isn't budging here yeah i saw it with the west coast dock workers too even more right. recently yeah. this spring and as you mentioned you know the, the government did have to intervene at that. Um, well, I think a lot of us probably remember Joe Biden taking a nice trip out there <laughs> yeah. to visit. <laughs> and, and I'll say this isn't really quickly, this is an international story too, because Canada also now dealing with, with port strikes as well. So you're seeing this all over, I want to say the world. What's UPS saying? Are they, what's their bargaining position? Are they saying we pay competitively? What's what, what are they saying here? So UPS is saying that, look, we are negotiating. We've already made a lot of concessions, which to be fair, they have a uh, normal mandatory overtime. They've changed their two tier payment system. But they're saying that the Teamsters kind of have to give uh, some sort of leeway here. And if you look at this last round of negotiations, which collapsed this morning, by the way, mm. uh, they're saying that the Teamsters are the ones who walked away from from the bargaining table. So you have to they're saying you have to continue this dialogue. Um, of course, we're going to keep you updated on because this is not over yet but but we'll see how this goes. what have we heard from the administration is like i haven't heard anything like president biden talking about this is this just because not we've much. got you know three weeks to go before it really gets pretty much down? look i don't i think the biden administration and molly correct me if i'm wrong you're, you're on the economics team um they really want to not intervene until they really have to when you saw this with the rail strike i keep bringing this back to the rail strikes because we just went through this a couple of months ago marty walsh uh the labor secretary at the time got involved at the very last minute. And it ended up being because Congress uh, had to intervene. It was some sort of very old rail law from yep. like 1912 yeah. yep. that only applied to rail for, for some reason. Um, and, and that's what they ended up instigating. But you kind of want to make this work on its own before the Biden administration gets involved, especially because of the political consequences. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, that is definitely the you know 11th hour Hail Mary. Yeah. We need to call in the top guns <laughs> to make this happen. Right. So um, yeah, it doesn't seem like we're quite there yet, but uh, certainly would be concerning over the next three weeks um, if we if it does escalate to that point. It does. Is there an indication that 
this could be drawn out for it could till the end it could so i think what, what was it what was kind of the difference again i'm going to bring it back to the real strikes because it's a little bit of deja vu here is that the voting periods were longer so you had kind of okay well, we're going to go to the 11th hour and then we're going to have three or six weeks to vote and then come back so it was kind of a drawn out process specifically because of that law that dated back to like 1912 or whatever this time around that's not true it has been voted 97 percent by the union that if this agreement isn't hit by july 31st which is when the contract contract ends August 1st they are going on strike so we're still about two three weeks away but it's certainly something you want to keep an eye on because there is no long drawn-out process here uh, it, it's very simple and Marty Walsh is not going to come in and save the day because he is no longer the Secretary of Labor. Yeah. I'm just looking up. He's the director of the National Hockey League Players Association. Oh, yeah. He, he traded <laughs> so, up. <laughs> okay. Um, interesting. All right. So UPS will keep on the lookout for that because who doesn't receive a package every day at home? I mean, yeah. every day. So, And I'll give you an added piece of, of, of kind of trivia here. One of UPS's biggest customers is Amazon. So Amazon has their own logistics company, but their kind of leftover goes through UPS. Really? Because, again, I see the Amazon trucks everywhere now. Yeah. I mean, they, they've got to be, I have to ask Lee Klaskow, there's a Bloomberg Intelligence, they got to be one of the biggest trucking companies in the country. Now. Amazon? Yeah. I think they're be. headed that way. They're yeah, headed that way. it's extraordinary. All right, Kriti Gupta, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Kriti Gupta, uh, Markets Report, it does all that Bloomberg TV stuff. We appreciate getting some reporting there on UPS. Again, huge company. I didn't know this. The largest private sector union uh, uh, agreement there is the Teamsters with UPS. So we'll keep an eye on that. This is Bloomberg. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's get right down to it here. Lots of economic data coming out this week. We've got a Fed, uh, you know, going to be making some decision later on here in the month. So that means we need to check in with Ira Jersey. He does all of that interest rate stuff for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist. Ira, thanks so much for joining us here via Zoom here. Um, give us a sense of, I don't know, where the Fed is leaning. Uh, let, let's start this way. Here's my, my question about the Fed, and I just, I've been asking it from 
for some smart people. The And this is not a smart question. The optics of it. It just doesn't look good. When my Fed is raising interest rates every single quarter, over 500 basis points, then it pauses because maybe that's what you do after you've raised rates so much. Are they really going to get back on and start raising rates again? Does yeah, the optics look weird? Like- it seems like they really want to, Paul, and and it, you know they they made it pretty clear at the last meeting that um, that that they still want to be hawkish. They wanted to make sure that the market knew that it, if nothing else, they weren't cutting interest rates too early. So I, I think the bar at this point is actually reasonably uh, um, the the bar for them to to hike is actually very low. So you you really as long as you don't have like an absolutely crazy low employment number, if you don't have wages that you know fall significantly more than than the market. It expects and 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 if we if we get anywhere near consensus CPI uh, report, um, then I think the Fed's going to hike. I, I think it's that second Fed hike that the dots suggested might occur. That's much more in doubt at this point because you you are seeing a moderation of inflation, just not as quickly as they want. So um, th- so I think that was a signal that. That was signaling a little bit more that the Fed wants to be hawkish if they need to be. Um, so, 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 yeah. So this month, I, I think that they'll hike. You know, you know the market, the, the market is now almost fully priced for that, and also priced for some some chance of a uh, of a second hike as well. So, so, so the market's already there, regardless. So, so you won't see any more, you know, major moves unless the data really shocks one way or the other. Yeah, so Ira, we've heard from Powell as well as a few other Fed speakers uh, since that June meeting, and I think the market is still fairly confused as to what's going on here. <laughs> um, do we really think the minutes are going to give the the answer that everyone's been looking for? I I think that the minutes are going to be probably pretty mixed. You know, interestingly, even though the dot plot and and some of the rhetoric out of Jay Powell at the last press conference. Overall, our our natural language processing model suggested that actually- Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's let's take a step back. I know you're a model geek. You have a natural, what what is it again, a language model? Natural language processing. So so we take- Every sentence uh, within the opening remarks of the uh, uh, of Chair Powell's opening statement at the press conference, and then try to determine whether or not that statement is is hawkish or dovish, mm. modestly hawkish or modestly dovish, and then we we combine that into into an index. And what what we actually found was that that he was still pretty neutral overall. So he was pretty balanced in talking both hawkish and dovish, even though. Um, the dots and and some of his rhetoric suggested that that the Fed's going to hike again. Um, now, the the fact that they're going to hike again doesn't mean that they're you know going to hike another 150 or 200 basis points. So it kind of makes sense that yes, they're getting to the top of the cycle. The question is that they're trying to calibrate exactly where they think the Fed funds uh, rate should be in order for inflation to continue to come down and maybe come down a little bit faster than it has in the recent past. Mm, yeah. So so you so it sounds like like you said. July seems almost like a given at this point. And Powell even said, you know, he would not rule out consecutive hikes um, at, you know, concurrent <laughs> meetings. So do we are we already maybe even thinking what's the bar for September? Yeah, I, I think we do have to think about what the bar for September would be. And I think that bar is higher than than the bar for, for July. Um, and it's also one of the reasons why. So so, so a, a very smart investor actually suggested this. And, and this is an interesting concept was that the Fed was hiking at 75s and they hiking in, then they were hiking in 50s and they were hiking in 25s. Now they might be hiking in 12 and a halves. Um, and in order and, and the Fed doesn't do that. Right. They're not the Bank of Japan hiking in um, in, in decimals. So so uh, so. 
basically every other meeting, uh, they could be hiking in quarter point increments. And again, it, it makes sense in that regard from because it's they're in because they're in this calibration mode. Um, you know, they they don't want to go too fast, and they also want to have the ability to stop hiking at any moment, um, which was harder to do when they were hiking at 50s. Right now that they're hiking in 25s, they've skipped now a meeting. Um, it, it makes it a little bit easier for them to, to do that calibration. And nobody knows, right? So the problem is, is that ex ante, it's difficult to know exactly where the Fed funds rate should be. Um, I think that they've probably done enough in order for inflation to come down. Now they just need to give it time to, to occur. Um, but they don't see it that way. And, and you know, until they, they wind up with a, with a real funds rate that is, you know, significantly higher than, than headline inflation, um, they're, they're going to still think about hiking, even if they actually uh, don't do it every meeting. All right. Uh, Lisa Brahma says, I have to ask this question. She just emailed in from her vacation. Yield curve still inverted 103 basis points. Do we care? Do you care? What's the market telling you? Yeah, it's just telling us um, it's just telling us that 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 the the market is expecting the uh, interest rates to be lower in the future. I mean, that, that's the whole reason why you get inversions in the yield curve is just the expectation that, yes, we're going to have five percent interest rates now, but we might have three percent interest rates, you know, two or three, four years from now. And because of that, you get this inversion of the yield curve. You know, the fact that it's lasted now for for the better part of, of 18 months, um, it, you know, does suggest that the market thinks that we, we might be heading into a recession or if not a recession, then then at least a very significant reduction in inflation over the over the medium term and and uh um it, it you know at some point we're going to start to really uninvert quite aggressively i think but um the, the timing of that is probably not until it's very clear that the federal reserve's done hiking um until then the two-year yield is probably gonna keep on hovering you know kind of just a little bit below um where where the high the highest uh, fed funds rate might actually be you know, and it really took until the last Fed meeting for the market expectations to kind of be more in sync with what Powell and the Fed have been saying, uh, looking at the world interest rate probability function now on the terminal. Um, you know, it looks like those, you know, prop, those expectations for rate cuts this year dramatically have come down. So, you know, what is, does the market have some of that natural language processing model that you do? Or <laughs> what, what is it that they finally believe the Fed? Yeah, yeah, I, I think that that a lot of people thought that the Fed didn't have the resolve to continue um, to hike interest rates beyond uh, beyond June. So you you had a lot of people thinking, oh, the the economy is going to fall fall apart. They've hiked 500 basis points. We're going to wind up seeing a recession later this year. Um, but a lot of the data that's been coming in suggests that even if we do have a recession, it'll be very shallow and won't necessarily be enough to pull inflation down significantly more. So therefore, the Federal Reserve is is not going to be cut interest rates later this year now now keep in mind that that is not that we've priced out cuts we actually still have a cut priced for uh for six months from now right so, so the market keeps pricing for a cut six months after the last hike a cut six months after the last hike the problem is is that we've pulled forward now uh when that last hike is going to be because now if the last hike is in july then they're going to wind up you know the first cut is now priced for january and then if they you know wind up hiking again in september like paul was suggesting if that that happens and maybe the first cuts not priced then until march so it's always this kind of rolling six right. month window for uh, for the first cut ira molly and i let's be honest we're focused entirely on wimbledon for the next two weeks but if i had a spare moment is there anything in the world of soccer that we should be paying attention to 
Uh, well, the, the Gold Cup's going on right now. We're in the semifinals uh, or quarterfinals, excuse me. So the U.S. plays Canada. And, uh, and, and you have to later this month starts the Women's World Cup out in uh, New Zealand and Australia. So uh, the, the roster drops for that are, uh, uh, are pretty interesting, you know, especially in the U.S. We have a lot of younger, uh, younger women who are going to be headed down to, uh, uh, to down under to play some football. All right. Good stuff. You ask a question, you'll get an answer from this guy. Ira Jersey, uh, uh, he is our soccer guru. He's off of our, I think he does interest rates and stuff like that for Bloomberg Intelligence. That's what gets the paycheck, so I'm told. So he is our go-to guy on the Fed and on uh, global soccer as well. So uh, again, we'll keep an eye on that. S&P 500 basically unchanged on the day. Uh, we got the Dow off about four-tenths of 1%. That's 125 points for those of you keeping score at home. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Paul Sweeney here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Boy, you think about 2022. That was just ugly for asset allocators. That's 60 40 portfolio uh, did not work out at all for anybody. So you think about here, year to date 2023, heck of a first half uh, when you look at uh, particularly equity, equity markets, but also fixed income. So brings into question asset allocation. What do you do here on the second half of the year going into uh, 2024? Uh, for our next guest does that stuff for a living, Nimrit Kang, co-CIO, senior portfolio manager at uh, North Star Asset Management. He gets his chemical engineering degree. I mean, who does that at Virginia Tech, really good tech school. Then he gets an MBA from some trade school up in Boston. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, Nimrit, thanks so much for joining us here. Um, asset allocation, where are you guys these days? Uh, after what's been, a, I think for a lot of people, a surprisingly strong first half of the year. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yes, going into 2023, we were very cautious uh, on the markets. You know, like everyone else, we expected this uh, lag between monetary policy and economic effects, which has, uh, it, which is really still missing in action. Equity markets have been strong. We had been underweight equities um, going into 2023, and we remain underweight um, equities slightly versus targets. And the reason there is that. Um, just history shows there are considerable lags between monetary policy and economic effects. We have never had this kind of steep rise in um, interest rates over such a short period. Yes, we've seen some effects of that from the regional bank crisis to you know the bursting of the crypto assets, but we think these are effects that are gonna bear out over a much longer time. And in general, we just feel like we're in this um, period where you know, a lot of um, people are calling this a poly crisis age. There are a number of things that are coming together. But generally, all that means is higher level of uncertainty and volatility in the markets. That to us just says that, you know, we just need to be very risk aware and focused on running very diversified portfolios for our clients. When I hear asset allocators talk about higher volatility, it sounds like more opportunities. So where are you finding those pockets right now to invest in? Yeah, yeah, no, really um, good question. So when we think about higher volatility, of course, you know, right away we think about 
just going back to the basics, investing in those companies where we have pretty strong conviction on the cash flows going forward. And if we have conviction on the strong cash flows and we don't pay too much for those stocks, we know that over the longer time, those companies are going to hold up both in down markets and up markets. They can be both offensive and defensive holdings. And then, of course, in the fixed income side, we are taking the opportunity to extend um, maturities for our clients, getting locking in higher interest rates where we can. And if down the road there is an end to this monetary tightening po uh, cycle and we do see interest rates come down, there is that appreciation potential as well. Nimra, I'd love to get some thoughts on the equity space here. What are some names that you're looking at? What are some themes that you guys pursue when, you, when you're looking to you know, invest on the uh, equity side? Absolutely. So the way we build our portfolios is we've uh, it's intersection of a number of different factors, but really our process starts with identifying some of those long-term societal challenges that we feel um, are going to need a tremendous innovation to solve. So for example, we have been in that digital transformation space for a while, and you know we did not expect this new boom coming from artificial intelligence that has basically been the big story for 2023. But several of those companies have been benefiting from that. You know, that's your Bellwether, Microsoft, Adobe, CRM, all those types of stocks. So that's a theme that's been in the portfolio for a while. We just see that these companies are going to continue to solve the problem related to productivity, labor productivity, and some of the other challenges that we see. But then on the other side, there are other examples. For example, you know, the all the challenges related to climate change and some of the things that we're coming to see, they're coming together very quickly relating to, you know, very high temperatures, hotter uh, summers, droughts, floods, all types of issues that we're seeing there. Some of the companies that we think are going to be at the forefront of challenging them, especially related to water efficiency. You know, lately we've heard a lot about the uh, Colorado River levels drying up, creating all kinds of challenges there. We have been investing in a number of stocks. There's some smaller cap companies that are not your household names like Badger Meter or Xylem. These companies provide instruments, meters, valves, uh, all kinds of other solutions to help drive water conservation, measurement, and efficiency. And we think the demand for those products and solutions is only going to increase over time. So Nimrit, you're just saying that you came into 2023 underweight equities. Um, looking at the S&P 500, it's up 16% year to date. Are you rethinking going into the second half of the year if that's still where you want to be or sticking to your guns and that and those lags are going to kick in? Yes, yes. So, you know, it's interesting. There's an adage in the stock market, nobody knows nothing, right? And 2023 <laughs> definitely proved that by spades. If you had asked anyone, it was interesting. I was reviewing my notes and across the board, you know, there's no way you can have continue to have the kind of interest rate normalization going on as we did like 500 basis points on the low end over the last 18 months. 
and not have a major slowdown in that economy. Yet the economy has defied all those odds so far, especially the resiliency of the economy. So I think there's so many different puts and takes that are affecting the economy in general. It's hard to really understand when that inflection point happens between the negatives, i.e. the credit um, tightening cycle that we're expecting, just you know, the pressure overall, going from a very easy monetary policy, an era, almost a decade, more than a decade of where there was basically money, there was no cost related to money, to actually having higher interest rates, that's a sizable shift in regime. I was just uh, reading a study which showed that one third of an increase in profit margins for S&P 500 has come from lower interest rates and reduced taxes. Nothing about the taxes yet, but we know interest rates are definitely changing. So when we look further out, it's hard to ascertain when that inflection does happen, but it's hard to imagine that we will not start to see some impact from this type of a sea change in monetary policy. That's just really on the financial side. Now, let me talk about some of the social issues that we're talking about. Right. Yes, you know, despite all the different things that we're talking about, economic inclusion is probably at its lowest levels that we right. have seen. It's harder and harder for low-income families to meet daily needs. How does that all translate yeah. into the broad-based ramifications? So when we put all that together, Molly, we're still staying underweight equities. And all again, right. staying underweight, but remaining very much invested in yep. these high quality names. All right, Nimrit, thank you so much for joining us. Nimrit Kang, co-CIO and Senior Portfolio Manager at Northstar uh, Asset Management, joining us. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's switch gears. Let's go uh, global energy here. I'm looking at WTI crude oil. 
It's about 2.2% today, just above uh, $71 a barrel gets my opinion, it gets my attention. Had been trading uh, below 70. Let's bring in a couple smart people who know about global energy. That would be Mike McGlone, senior macro strategist with Bloomberg Intelligence and Fernando Valle, senior analyst with uh, Bloomberg Intelligence. Mike joins us from Miami via Zoom and uh, Fernando's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Mike, let's start with you. Uh, down in, in Miami, uh, dealing with the uh, the heat down there. Good for you. How is it um, now? No, oh, it's nice and humid, but I hear it's much warmer up north. It just gets <laughs> <Okay>. colder nights. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a hard time all summer here because I know you enjoy it in the wintertime. <laughs> hey, Mike, just give us a sense here. What's you know just from commodity trading perspective, what what do you what do you think about oil right here? It's a bear market. What stops it? To me, that's the bottom line. Um, the question is, has the market plateaued? And typically. There is no indications of that at all. Typically, what it takes for a broad commodity market to bottom, you need some form of significant lag to significant Federal Reserve easing, and a, maybe, a, as Vince pointed out, maybe a weak dollar and a pretty significant pickup in China demand. They're all going the wrong way right now. The only thing that's going the and really cheap prices. The only thing that's going the right right way, ways prices have gotten low. So let's look at let's start with we're talking about WTI. It's around 70 bucks a barrel and it's almost half last year's price, but it's the same price as it first started to trade in 2005. The bottom line is natural gas, its cousin has already collapsed. It got really cheap and it's bounced. It got down to 2, it's bounced up to near 3. It's in the middle there now and I think that's the trajectory for Oil. And the key thing I ask myself is what stops this? As we tilt towards the second half, as Vince pointed out, these long and variable lags, the Federal Reserve is still tightening. And I don't, and our chief economist, Anna Wong, says we're going to get a recession likely in, in the second half. Yes, it's been delayed. And U.S. unemployment to start picking up around 4.3%. None of that to me is good for crude oil to sustain a bounce. It might have bounces, but none of that's good for it to sustain a new bull market. Fernando, I want to bring you in here. You're our senior analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence here, Fernando Valle. Um, let's talk about so this uh, that Saud the Saudis and Russia are extending these oil supply cuts uh, to prop up the market. So, do you think it's going to work? This isn't the first time. Um, and like we said, prices are so low. Well, I think part of the balance today is that the, these cuts, the additional cuts, started in July, and today is really the first real trading day with volume because we had the holiday. Uh, yesterday in the U.S. Um, but even then, you're not seeing a huge jump up in prices. You're seeing a, a relative strong, but nothing really to write home about. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the bull case that was predicated on the lack of spare capacity in global oil production. And when you cut production, what do you make? You create spare capacity. So we don't think that this is necessarily a bullish signal, as Mike was alluding to. Um, Demand is really the biggest driver that we're looking for. Uh, China demand is still not there. We're seeing some weaknesses in, in the U.S. as well and, and on the housing side, on the office real estate side. Uh, those are the big concerns for the, for the summer. Uh, and, and, and when we looked at the inventory report from last week from the EIA, uh, we saw lower refinery utilization, lower refinery consumption of crude oil. And that's weird when you have crack spreads, the, the margin that refiners make at nearly two and a half times the average for the past 15 years. Uh, why aren't they running? And that suggests maybe the physical market is not as, as tight as we expected. Well, John Tucker, it, I mean, he moves the needle by himself just on a daily basis, how much he drives back and 350 forth. 350 at the Wawa this morning. 350 at the Wawa on Route 36 in Jersey, just to get your price check there. Um, Fernando, 
what are your companies telling you? What are the big majors telling you about what they're doing? Where, where do they think energy's going? Where are they investing these days? Well, there's a big bifurcation between the Europeans and the American major oil companies. When you look at the major oil companies, they're saying we're investing. Oil is our business and we're going to continue to invest. And we're going to invest in reducing the carbon emissions from existing production as opposed to investing in new ways of energy. And so far, it's it's proving to be the right call as far as a, re as a return standpoint. We've seen some of the Europeans like BP and Shell acquiesce uh, before they said they were, they were going to let their production fall by as much as 30%. And now they're saying, whoa, whoa, whoa prices are too good, the returns are too good, and the returns on the renewable side are not nearly as good as we expected them to be. So we're going to invest uh, on our oil side again. Um, the question is, where do you invest now? Uh, Mike, I want to bring you back in here. You were talking to us before about these different factors right now that are keeping prices low, that we've got the China demand picture isn't so great. The Fed is obviously not easing. Um, which one of these are, you know, you think could uh, among the other factors you mentioned, too, what do you think could turn first uh, and really get uh, things moving in the other direction? That That's the big problem, Molly. Typically, for the in this case, I think it's one of those most unique cases I've seen in my career in this business of almost four decades, and that is the Fed is unlikely to pivot or start easing until markets tell them to, i.e. stock market going down. And this is somewhat the view from our chief economist, because our, the measures they watch for inflation are very sticky. Personal consumption expenditure is still hovering just below 5%, and Fed funds are heading higher. So I don't see what it's going to take. And the, to me, the biggest risk for the second half is something I started really worried about, um, starting pointing out a year ago. Is this is a, probably be one of the biggest economic resets of a lifetime. And we've had a bounce, and we've had all the markets – um, equity markets think that we're not going to have a U.S. recession. Now, if we do tilt towards that in the second half, just the normal lag to the most aggressive federal rate hike easing or tightening ever, crude oil could just be a pawn in that space. Now, crude oil is down 10% on the year. It's not a big deal, but it's, it's brethren copper, the metal with the Ph.D. in economics, is it's, it's, you know, it's wiped out a pretty good rally in January. Now it's down in the year, too. And gold is the best-performing commodity. So from a commodity standpoint, gold up – crude oil and industrial metals down, that's a recessionary trajectory. And then I look over at the yield curve. Okay, that's tilting towards inversion, recessionary trajectory. And I look at the Fed, still tightening. There's nothing good in there except some kind of surprise I can't predict for the commodity bear market to end. All right. So, Mike, when people come up to me at cocktail parties and ask me for my commodities call because they never do, I just quote you and just say, <laughs> am I still long gold, short everything else? Um, well, I have. You know, I think gold is much likely to continue the rally to break out above this 2,000 level and never look back. It's a matter of time. And crude oils and most commodities are going to continue to do what they normally do. They get too expensive, and then pendulum swings to too cheap, and it has to get too cheap before they can bounce again. And we're nowhere near that too cheap phase, as, as Fernando says. There's still a lot of profits to be made. The average cost of production from U.S. producers is around $50 a barrel. So I just look at 40 as the key level should go back to. That was a key level in uh, 1990. I was in the trading pits then when the, um, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. It bounced mm -hmm. to 40. And guess th get this, the bounce at the bottom, the ultimate bottom didn't come until 10, until right. um, about 10, until 1998. Now, things have really changed. The U.S. now is the biggest, one of, is a net, one of the biggest net energy producers on the planet and a net export. Yep. Hey, Fernando, real, real quick, 30 seconds. What do you think? 
Which company do you think is the best positioned here at these big energy companies? Well, I think Exxon has done a, a terrific job in turning around this investment by uh, growing in Guyana, by acquiring the Permian. Uh, Chevron uh, equally has a sizable Permian position and is in good position. So I think the U.S. over Europe overall. Okay, great stuff. As always, we always get the nice, clean, concise call from both of you guys. Mike McGlone, Senior micro, uh, Macro Strategist with the Bloomberg Intelligence uh, from the Miami office. Some folks refer to him now as Miami Mike. I don't know if that's going to stick. Fernando Valle, Senior Analyst with uh, Bloomberg Intelligence. He covers the global energy space, uh, covers all the big major uh, oil companies. So we like to speak to these two folks, get a good view uh, of global energy. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Molly Smith and Paul Sweeney here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I want to get right to our next guest, Jerry Smith, media reporter for Bloomberg News, one of the top media reporters out there breaking lots of news, and we got him here in studio. All right, so Jerry, I want to start with ESPN. Back in my banking days, we pitched to spin that thing out. We thought we could get 40 times earnings, double the value. Back when Disney was trading at 20 times, we always got laughed out of the office, if not physically thrown out of the office by the CFO of Disney. What is ESPN going to do? What is Disney going to do with ESPN these days? What do you think going forward? I think that's one of the biggest questions in the media and business right now is the future of ESPN. Um, you know, it still makes a lot of money for Disney, and that's important to think about because Disney also has this whole streaming business with Disney Plus, yep. where that loses a lot of money. So the money that ESPN and the cable network business makes is used to fund the streaming business. So you get rid of ESPN, and suddenly you have to ask, where are you going to fund your streaming business? That's a good point. Uh, but yeah, ESPN is um, is dealing with the same thing that a lot of cable networks are dealing with, which is cord cutting. The number of subscriptions keeps going down and down, and they have a lot. They're spending billions of dollars on sports rights, and they have a lot of high-profile talent. Last Friday, we saw uh, about twenty of those uh, people who appear Jeff on camera. Jeff Van Gundy, Jeff Van Gundy, yeah. Jalen Rose, Susie Colbert were three of the yep. big names uh, who were laid off uh, as part of a cost-cutting initiative. And uh, part of that is is really because ESPN is going to be under bigger scrutiny from Wall Street than ever before coming up. They are Disney for the first time in one of the next few quarters is going to break out ESPN's financial numbers for the first time. So that is clearly ESPN wants those numbers to look good. So they are going to, um, you know, they made some cuts to some of the, the high profile talent. At least they've kept the high profile tennis talent. I will <laughs> vouch for that. They're all very much in form at Wimbledon. So happy good. from my perspective. But I'm wondering, Jerry, because isn't so much of the value of, you know, cable right now, sports, Right? Isn't that so much of like where people have been saying this is why cable is still around and why streaming has not completely overtaken it, the whole picture? That's right. Yeah. I mean, if the people who subscribe to cable right now are in large part sports fans, some news fans as well, but live sports is really what's keeping the whole industry together. So one of the big questions with ESPN is when do they make that flagship channel available uh, as a streaming service, and the day that they do that could really, you know, unravel the whole business because you could see more people cut the cord uh, to sign up for this ESPN service, uh, and how much you price it is an open question. But um, yeah, I mean, live sports is really what's keeping it the whole business together right now. 
And, you know, you say that live sports, absolutely, that's always been the case. But you think about the regional sports network business, the number one player out there is in bankruptcy. You know, a lot of teams aren't even having their games broadcast anymore. So that whole model is really under pressure. ESPN model under pressure. In that background, the rights keep going up. I mean, who's going to pay these 30, 40, 50% increase in rights if it's not ESPN? Right. I think we're really heading towards a cliff with this whole business where at some point, some sports league is not going to be able to command the kind of increase in their rights fees that uh, that they have in the past. That hasn't happened yet. Uh, it's the amount that uh, live sports cost just keeps going yeah, up and crazy. up. But I think there's going to be a point where some of these sports leagues are going to take a haircut. Uh, I don't think it's going to be the really high profile leagues. The big one coming up is the NBA. And I think everyone expects the NBA still going to get uh, a nice premium from what they got. But People I talk to in the industry is say, look, watch for some of those middle tier sports that um, are really going to get squeezed right now. So mm. if it's not, if ESPN, you know, you would think this is going to be like the channel here that can obviously weather whatever's going on in the sports industry. If they're not able to put it together, uh, you know, how are the networks faring? Obviously, ABC still part of the Disney empire, but when you look at NBC, CBS, some of the other ones that will, um, you know, broadcast live sports, how are they holding up? Well, those broadcast channels, uh, I mean, one interesting trend we've seen with cord cutting is a lot of people who not only cancel their cable for Netflix, but they also get these digital antennas. And you can actually get a lot of programming on that, including CBS, NBC, Fox. So those channels are, are, are weathering uh, the storm better. Um, and in fact, you know, the NBA, when they're looking for this next sports right deal, they really want to find a media partner that can offer them streaming and also a broadcast channel like an ABC or an NBC or a, or a CBS or Fox, uh, because those channels have a lot more reach. We're seeing with these regional sports networks just a few weeks ago, the Utah Jazz did a deal where they um, their games are going to be available over an antenna, over a free over the air channel. Uh, and they did away with their cable um, deal. They had a cable network that aired their games. That's not going to happen anymore. Wow. So that's that's something that we're starting to see in the sports business is the cable channels because of cord cutting their reach is diminishing and you're seeing a combination of more free over the air channels and streaming channels to kind of reach the widest audience possible the real question there is at what point can those leagues still command the same kind of money they got from the cable channels uh, right now they're not getting the same kind of money so how do they make up that loss yeah if I'm a I think at some point this is going to trickle down to the athletes themselves if I were somebody I'd be locking up a long-term contract now you know? yeah that's what's fascinating about the sports media business is everything's connected everything from how much the sports player is getting paid to the person at home who's canceling their cable service there's a, a chain link and everybody's yep. connected and so more and more people cut the cord and that trickles down all the way to the teams how much they can play their uh, pay their players does that mean that people are even maybe you know if they're not paying to watch this stuff on cable anymore does it even say like you, you, if you still really want to watch these games you're going more in person that's a good question. I think in attendance in, in, in sports has actually been doing pretty well. I think Major League Baseball's attendance is doing well. They actually made an interesting change this year where they made the game shorter, which I think has yes. helped both the viewership and the attendance. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's something that years and years ago, that were, there were these blackout rules yes. where you couldn't watch <laughs> sporting events because they wanted to make sure that enough people actually went to the games. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you think about the business of owning a sports franchise, Media rights are a huge piece of it, but also people going to the games, the attendance, ticket costs, yep. things like that. So, yeah, that's an excellent question. I'm not sure what the answer is. Jerry, you cover the, the whole media space soup, the nuts here. Um, 
have we reached peak Hollywood in the sense that, boy, the spending on TV shows and movies just exploded due to, all, due to Netflix and all the other streaming competitors. But now we're seeing companies like Disney saying, oh, we got to cut costs, including production costs. Uh, your colleague at Bloomberg News, Lucas Shaw, has got a, a story out about Amazon CEO, wants to know why they're spending so much money on program. So if Amazon's asking that question, have we maybe had peak spending in Hollywood? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. And, and I'd encourage everyone to read Lucas's story because it's um, it's really one of the first times we've seen Amazon really look at the cost of their Hollywood studio. Uh, I think it helps to think of the streamers as different kinds of companies with different priorities. Um, you know, you have Apple and Amazon who just have such enormously deep pockets that um, the losses that everyone's losing money on streaming, but the, they can sustain the losses uh, much easier than some of these other companies that where media is their whole business, someone like a Disney uh, or Comcast uh, or Paramount, where they're having real cost cutting issues. Again, getting back to the whole um, cord cutting phenomenon. But yeah, we're starting to see even someone like Amazon. I mean, there's, they're spending $7 billion a year on streaming, uh, on programming. And then that's a drop in the bucket for, for them, but they're still looking at these losses. Hey, you know, I was reading a research note by uh, Laura Martin at Needham and Company, and she was talking about Paramount. And her question, she was saying, hey, here's the questions I'm getting from institutional investors. And then when it came up to Paramount, the question was, when are they going to sell? Is that really a story? Is there a belief out there, Jerry, that maybe the, you know, Sherry Redstone and the Redstone family and the trust would ever sell Paramount? I think that's something that people have been talking about for as long as I've been covering this beat. I mean, it's years and years. Um, I think that the, you know, this is an industry about scale, how big you can be. And I think Paramount, uh, even after they combined Viacom with CBS, has always been seen as being undersized. And everyone's always wondering, well, when is someone going to buy them? Um, but, you know, there's also the companies that can afford to buy them are companies like an Apple or an Amazon. Everyone always wonders, but um, do those companies really want to get into the cable channel business with all the challenges that they're facing right now? Um, you know, maybe they could just sell off the studio. That might be attractive. But, um, yeah, it's a scale business, and they've always been seen as undersized. So I think that's something everybody's always wondering. I think the Allen & Company Sun Valley Conference is coming up. Where oh, yeah. Everybody loves to talk about how there's deals being done there. That's so. this month, right? I believe that's coming up, yeah. So that's. I didn't get my invite. I'm still waiting. All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, New York Times, we talked about it. The New York Times still cranking it out. It's got a $6.5 billion market cap. Everybody thought the New York Times was going out of business. A lot of other papers have, unfortunately. Uh, but the stock's up 22% year to date because content is king. So as long as you got the premium content, they'll figure out a way to get paid for it. And the New York Times, their app ha has been extraordinary. Their digital advertising has been great. So there's my little plug. I've been following New York Times company for like you know, 40 years. Cooking and games. Those are the big ones. Exactly. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's check about the uh, fixed income business. Uh, 2022, a year to forget for pretty much everybody in the fixed income space, a little bit better this year. Uh, so we want to check in with Ward Bortz. He is Ward Bortz. He is the ETF portfolio manager, head of distribution, public strategies at Angel Oak. So Ward, you know, I'm looking at the two-year treasury. I don't know, 4.91%. I'll put some money in there and I think I'll be quite happy. You know, what do you think about fixed income space these days? 
Yeah, we to your point, I think 2022, it was painful getting there after years of really getting no yield, no return in the in the fixed income markets. Uh, but 2023 has been off to a decent start in fixed income. You know, our view at the beginning of the year was you could get equity like returns in fixed income. Uh, and, you know, in our head, that's kind of call it eight to 12 percent, depending on what interest rates do throughout the year. We're about halfway there now, uh, right around four percent. I think high yield uh, so far this year is up five and a half percent. So, you know, thus far, it's been pretty good. And our expectation is through the rest of the year, it's it's not a bad place to be positioned, particularly given what you've seen on the uh, equity market so far this year. Yeah, Ward, you know, I used to cover credit and, you know, a lot of this, I'm I'm really just scratching my head here because rates have still gone up this year. We are hearing that rates are going to stay high this year. And yet you're seeing high yield, like you said, up close around five and a half percent investment grade up three percent. Where is the where is this coming from? It's it's <laughs> the first time in, you know, I don't know how long uh, where carry actually matters. The coupon that you're getting from bonds, you know, are able to offset. Uh, the increases in yield. So, you know, to the the point made earlier, if you can get 5% in uh, short-term treasuries, even if yields go up 100 basis points, it's going to be offset by the the yield you're getting in in bonds. And and that's really what we're seeing with investors. We're seeing investors kind of doing the math on that and saying, you know what, I'm going to increase my allocation to bonds a bit uh, to really take advantage of what historically, or at least for the last 10 years, has really been no opportunities. So how do you play this in the ETF space, Ward? Uh, so what we think is attractive. So maybe I'll answer that slightly differently. Where are the risks to this? So if we think about our outlook for the rest of the year, we think that the economy is going to start to slow down. So the, the impact of the Fed raising rates over the last year is going to start to be felt. Um, and you'll see an economic slowdown. Right now in traditional corporate credit, uh, uh, spreads are, are very tight. And so uh, we are encouraging investors to underweight corporate credit because if we do see a slowdown in the economy, that's going to feed into corporations, feed into earnings. Uh, potentially, you could see defaults start to increase, if not late this year, then early next year. Uh, and so we're saying underweight corporate credit where you've already had decent returns for the year, as, as has been highlighted. And what we really like is mortgage-backed securities. So we call this securitized credit. So these are bonds uh, that are issued by Fannie and Freddie um, or uh, uh, those that aren't backed by the government. Here, you're able to get similar yields to what you get in the corporate space, if not higher. Uh, And we think a lot more upside because these are actually priced a lot wider than historical levels relative to to corporate. So we really think that's the attractive place to, to play in the marketplace. So from an ETF standpoint, if you look at agency mortgage-backed uh, ETFs like uh, uh, MVB uh, is, a, is a big one, um, you know, you're going to benefit both if rates start to decline and if the, the yields and spreads of these mortgage-backed securities start to decline. In addition, we have a non-agency uh, ETF, C-A-R-Y, and this is kind of a, a little bit more bang for your buck, a little bit higher yield, but still investing in that mortgage-backed security opportunity that we see right now. And per that, uh, you know, that, that what you're talking about here with MBS, 
What's your view then on mortgages um, and how does that filter into this call? Uh, on the mortgage market generally, so that's going to be driven by a couple of things. So one is, you know, home prices. So what do we think is going to happen with home prices? And what you've seen so far this year is generally a stabilization in home prices after, you know, what everybody knows was an incredible 2020, 21, and even 22 in terms of home price appreciation. We think you'll start to see a stabilization in, in home prices, but not really a significant depreciation. So we think from a credit standpoint, those mortgage bonds, those mortgage-backed securities are actually in really great shape because the, the houses that back them uh, are doing great from a, a price standpoint. Ward, what do you think about uh, private credit? It's a, it's a business, it's a market, it's an asset class that has really has come onto the scene in the last, I don't know, decade or so, and it's gotten so popular. How do you guys think about that? Do you have exposure there? What do you think about that? So we do not... So number one, it has been an explosion. Uh, you know, we kind of thought, given the increase in yields that you've seen in traditional public markets over the last year, that there would be a decline in growth in uh, in private credit. But but the, it hasn't worked out that way. People continue to demand private credit significantly, and this is really, uh, um, you know, backed by corporations, similar to corporate bonds, except you know, private loans. Uh, we think that, you know, from everything we've seen, there'll be continued growth there. Uh, our concern is whenever you see an asset class explode in growth, as you've seen in private credit, uh, you can see lending standards start to decline. And the, the private credit asset class really has not been tested yet. And so our concern about it is when you start to see that economic slowdown, you've seen significant growth in the size of the asset class. Have the underwriting standards held up as much as you know as much as they were historically, where you had very low default rates and, and high recovery rates in private credit. So, you know, in our head, the, the jury's still out on whether or not private credit's able to withstand the, the the first downturn that it sees. All right, Ward, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, getting some of your time here, Ward Bortz. He's an ETF portfolio manager, head of distribution public strategies at Angel Oak. Before that, uh, he was a dimensional fund advisor, trader, trading at RBC Capital Markets, all kinds of uh, stuff there at BlackRock as well. So uh, lots of experience out there in the space, uh, getting his thoughts on fixed income. Much better year in 2023 uh, and a high yield, you know, um, return of over 5% or about 5% this year so far. It's pretty darn impressive. I was just looking even triple C's up about 10% this year. Yep. So not seeing the stress yet. Yeah, definitely uh, not. Exactly. And it, <laughs> but that's after a brutal 2022. So a lot of room, uh, a, a lot of still digging needs to be done to get out of that hole. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of 
Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. 